Section 8 of Irish Wit and Humor. The author is anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by James Carson. Daniel O'Connell. Part 2. An Insolent Judge. The judges themselves often came in for a share of his animadversions when he deemed their judicial or other conduct deserved public censure and when he pleaded as an advocate before them their resentment betrayed itself singular to say his practice was never injuriously affected by his boldness outside other men have suffered vitally from the political or personal hostility of judges curran was one of them but o'connell beat down the most formidable hatred and compelled by the sheer force of legal and intellectual power the bitterest and most obstinate personal rancor to give way he compelled pompous despotic and hostile judges to yield he could not be awed if they were haughty he was proud if they were malevolent he was cuttingly sarcastic it happened that he was by at an argument in one of the courts of dublin in the course of which a young kerry attorney was called upon by the opposing counsel either to admit a statement as evidence or to hand in some documents he could legally detain o'connell was not specially engaged the discussion arose on a new trial motion the issue to go down to the assizes he did not interfere until the demand was made on the attorney but he then stood up and told him to make no admission he was about to resume his seat when the judge baron mcclelland said with a peculiar emphasis mr o'connell have you a brief in this case no my lord i have not but i will have one when the case goes down to the assizes when i rejoined the judge throwing himself back with an air of lofty scorn was at the bar it was not my habit to anticipate briefs when you were at the bar retorted o'connell i never chose you for a model and now that you are on the bench i shall not submit to your dictation leaving his lordship to digest this retort he took the attorney by the arm and walked him out of the court in this way he dealt with hostile judges a witness cajoled o'connell knew so intimately the habits and character of the humbler class that he was able by cajolery or intimidation to coerce them when on the table into truth-telling he was once examining a witness whose inebriety at the time to which the evidence referred it was essential to his client's case to prove he quickly discovered the man's character he was a fellow who may be described as half foolish with roguery well darby said the counsellor taking him on the cross-examination you told the whole truth to that gentleman pointing to the counsel who had just examined the witness yes your honour counsellor o'connell how do you know my name ah sure everyone knows our own patriot well you are a good-humoured honest fellow now tell me darby did you take a drop of anything that day why your honour i took my share of a pint of spirits your share of it now by virtue of your oath was not your share of it all but the pewter 
Why then, dear knows, that's true for you, sir. The court was convulsed at both question and answer. It soon came out that the man was drunk and was not therefore a competent witness, though so Connell won the case for his client. His duel with Captain Destere. When O'Connell found the government determined to strain the Convention Act to the utmost, and not permit the existence of any delegated committee for the management of Catholic affairs, he issued circulars to the number of gentlemen to meet him as individuals in Capel Street. From that circular arose the Catholic Association. It was at one of the early meetings of this body that he called the municipal functionaries of Dublin a beggarly corporation. He had become exceedingly obnoxious to the Orange Party. He was an object of intense hatred within the precincts of the castle. To get rid of such a man would be an invaluable service. The insult he had put on the immaculate and wealthy corporation offered too inviting an opportunity to be passed over. A champion of ascendancy appeared in the person of Captain Destere. On the 1st of February, 1815, nearly eleven days after the insult was received, and eight days after explanation was demanded and refused, this misled gentleman was advised to send a message. He addressed a letter in the following words, Sir, Carrick's paper of the 23rd instant, in its report of the debates of a meeting of the Catholic gentlemen on the subject of a petition, states that you applied the appellation of beggarly to the corporation of this city, calling it a beggarly corporation, and therefore as a member of that body, and feeling how painful such is, I beg leave to inquire whether you really used or expressed yourself in such language. I feel the more justified in calling on you on this occasion, as such language was not warranted or provoked by anything on the part of the corporation, neither was it consistent with the subject of your debate or the deportment of the other Catholic gentlemen who were present, and though I view it so inconsistent in every respect, I am in hopes the editor is under error, not you. I have further to request your reply in the course of the evening, and remain, sir, your obedient servant, J. N. Destere, 11 Bachelor's Walk, 26th January, 1815, to Councillor O'Connell, Marion Square. Sir, in reply to your letter of yesterday, and without either admitting or disclaiming the expression respecting the corporation of Dublin in the print to which you allude, I deem it right to inform you that from the calumnious manner in which the religion and character of the Catholics of Ireland are treated in that body, no terms attributed to me, however reproachful, can exceed the contemptuous feelings I entertain for that body in its corporate capacity although doubtless it contains many valuable persons whose conduct as individuals I lament must necessarily be confounded in the acts of the general body. I have only to add that this letter must dose our correspondence on this subject. I am, etc., etc., Daniel O'Connell, Marion Square, January 27, 1815, 
to J. and Astaire, Esquire, 11 Bachelor's Walk, Dublin. Mr. Destair was advised to persist in the correspondence, and addressed another letter, but directed it in a different handwriting, to Mr. O'Connell. It was returned to him by Mr. James O'Connell, enclosed in a letter couched in the following terms. Sir, from the tenor of your letter of yesterday, my brother did not expect that your next communication would have been made in writing. He directed me to open his letters in his absence. Your last letter, bearing a different address from the former one, was opened by me. But upon perceiving the name subscribed, I have declined to read it, and by his direction I return it to you enclosed and unread. I am, sir, your obedient servant, James O'Connell, Marion Square, Friday evening, to J. N. Destare, Esquire, 11 Bachelor's Walk. After a number of insulting letters from Destare, his long-expected hostile message arrived. Major McNamara of Doolan, having been commissioned by O'Connell, proceeded to Sir Edward Stanley, who acted as the friend of Destare, to arrange the meeting. The hour appointed was three o'clock on Wednesday. The place, Bishop's Court, Demence, Lord Ponsonby's seat, in the county Kildare, thirteen miles distant from Dublin. It was proposed by him that the mode of fighting should be after the following fashion, that both should be handed a brace of pistols, reserve their shots until the signal, and then fire when they pleased, advancing or retiring after each shot, as they thought proper. Major McNamara would not assent to this mode of fighting without first consulting O'Connell and his friends. O'Connell at once directed him to accept the terms. Major McNamara then returned to Sir Edward Stanley and finally arranged the meeting. The parties proceeded to take their ground and were handed a brace of pistols each. The signal was given. Both reserved their fire for some moments. Destair first changed his position, moving a pace towards the left hand, and then stepped towards O'Connell. His object was to induce him to fire, more or less, at random. He lifted his pistol, as if about to fire. O'Connell instantly presented, pulled the trigger, and the unfortunate man fell. In close attendance on O'Connell at the ground were Major McNamara, Nicholas Purcell O'Gorman, and Richard Nugent Bennett, as seconds and friends, for all may be said to have acted in the double capacity. It was reported in Dublin that O'Connell was shot, and a party of dragoons were dispatched from Dublin for the protection of Destair. On their way the officer by whom they were commanded met on its return the carriage containing O'Connell and his brother. The officer called on the postillion to stop, whereupon Mr. James O'Connell pulled down the window. The officer addressing him asked if they had been present at the duel, to which he replied in the affirmative. The officer then said, Is it true Mr. O'Connell has been shot? Mr. James O'Connell replied, No, the reverse is the fact. Mr. Destair has unfortunately fallen. The announcement had a visible effect upon the military. They were not prepared for the intelligence, and something like consternation 
was exhibited the carriage was allowed to proceed the military party being evidently not aware who were its occupants when the stare fell the spectators present could not refrain from giving expression to their excited feelings they actually shouted and a young collegian who was present and who became a protestant clergyman was so carried away by the general feeling as to fling up his hat in the air and shout hurrah for o'connell very different was the conduct of the three occupants of o'connell's carriage they displayed no exultation the moment d'estere fell they went off and though the place of the meeting was near nas they were close to dublin before a single word was exchanged between them at last o'connell broke the silence saying i fear he is dead he fell so suddenly where do you think he was hit in the head i think said his medical friend that cannot be i aimed low the ball must have entered near the thigh this will be considered a remarkable observation when as was subsequently found the wound was inflicted in the part mentioned by o'connell being one of the surest shots that ever fired a pistol he could have hit his antagonist where he pleased but his object was merely in self-defence to wound him in no mortal part and he aimed low with that intention the excitement in dublin when the result was known cannot be described and indeed is scarcely credited by those who were not then in the metropolis over seven hundred gentlemen left their cards at o'connell's the day after the occurrence great commiseration was felt for d'estere's family but it was considered that he himself lost his life foolishly it may be added that he was an officer in the navy and an eccentric character he at one time played off rather a serious joke upon his friends who resided near cork he wrote to them from abroad that he was sentenced to be hanged for mutiny and implored of them to use every interest to save him lord shannon interested himself in the affair and the greatest trouble was taken to obtain a pardon but it turned out to be a hoax practised by d'estere when under the influence of the jolly god knowing his character many even of opposite politics notwithstanding the party spirit that then prevailed regretted the issue the unfortunate man provoked o'connell and secretary goulburn mr goulburn while secretary of ireland visited killarney when o'connell then on circuit happened to be there both stopped at finn's hotel and chanced to get bedrooms opening off the same corridor the early habits of o'connell made him up at cockcrow finding the hall door locked and so being hindered from walking outside he commenced walking up and down the corridor to pass the time he repeated aloud some of moore's poetry and had just uttered the lines we tread the land that bore us the green flag flutters o'er us the friends we've tried are by our side at this moment goulburn popped his nightcapped head out to see what was the matter o'connell instantly pointed his finger at him and finished the verse and the foe we hate before us in went goulburn's head in the greatest hurry
entrapping a witness. An illustration of his dexterity in compassing an unfortunate culprit's acquittal may be here narrated. He was employed in defending a prisoner who was tried for a murder committed in the vicinity of Cork. The principal witness swore strongly against the prisoner. One corroborative circumstance was that the prisoner's hat was found near the place where the murder took place. The witness swore positively the hat produced was the one found, and that it belonged to the prisoner, whose name was James. By virtue of your oath, you are positive that this is the same hat? Yes. Did you examine it carefully before you swore in your informations that it was the prisoner's? Yes. Now let me see, said O'Connell, and he took up the hat and began carefully to examine the inside. He then spelled aloud the name James slowly, thus J, A, M, E, S. Now, do you mean those words were in the hat when you found it? I do. Did you see them there? I did. This is the same hat? It is. Now, my lord, said O'Connell, holding up the hat to the bench, there is an end to the case. There is no name whatever inscribed in the hat. The result was instant acquittal, gaining over a jury. At a Cork Assizes, many years ago, he was employed in an action of damages for diverting a stream from its regular channel, or diverting so much of it as inflicted injury on some party who previously benefited by its abundance. The injury was offered by a nobleman, and his attorney, on whose advice the proceeding was adopted, was a man of corpulent proportions, with a face bearing the ruddy glow of rude health, but flushed in a crowded court, assumed momentarily a color like that imparted by intemperance. He really was a most temperate man. O'Connell dwelt on the damage his client had sustained by the unjust usurpation. The stream should have been permitted to follow its old and natural course. There was neither law nor justice in turning it aside from his client's fields. He had a light to all its copiousness and the other party should have allowed him full enjoyment. In place of that, the latter monopolized the water. He diminished it. It became every day small by degrees and beautifully less. There is not now, he said, gentlemen of the jury, a tenth of the ordinary quantity. The stream is drying up, and so low is it, and so little of it, is there that continued he turning to the rubicund attorney and naming him there isn't enough of it to make grog for fogarty a roar of laughter followed and it was not stopped by the increased rosiness and embarrassment of the gentleman who became the victim of the learned advocate's humorous allusion the act in his sally was in endeavouring to create an impression on the jury that his poor client was sacrificed by the harsh conduct of a grog-drinking attorney, and thus create prejudice against the plaintiff's case. Thus did O'Connell gain the hearts of Irish juries, and thus did his, indulging his own natural humour on the public platform, gain the affections of his countrymen. Paddy and the Parson In June 1832, 
O'Connell addressed a meeting of the political union of the London working classes. In his address he humorously and graphically describes the system of passive resistance then adopted against the payment of tithes in the following amusing dialogue between Patty and the parson. And how does Paddy act? Does he disobey the laws? No, Paddy, says the parson. You owe me one pound seventeen shillings sixpence. And what may it be for, your reverence, says Pat, laughter. Tithes, Patty, are. Then I suppose your reverence gave some value for it. I was born. For devil a bit I ever seen since. Roars of laughter. But your reverence, I suppose, has law for it. Bless the law. Bless the law, your honour, and sure I wouldn't be after going to disobey it. But plays, your reverence, I have no money. Great laughter. Ah, Pat, but you've a cow there. Yes, your reverence. That's the cow that gives food to Norrie and the fourteen children. Well, Paddy, then I must distrain that cow. If your honour has law for it, to be sure you will. Well, what does Paddy do? He stamps the word tithes upon her side, and the parson can't find a soul to take the cow. So he gets a regiment and a half, by way of brokers, much laughter, fourteen or fifteen companies, with those amiable young gentlemen, their officers at their head, who march seventeen or eighteen miles across the bog of Allen to take his cow. They bring the cow to Carlo. When they get there they find a great crowd assembled. The parson rubs his hands with glee. Plenty of customers for the cow, quoth he to himself. The cow is put up at two pounds. No bidder, one pound, no bidder. Ten shillings, five shillings, six pence, one and a half pence, cheers. Not a soul will bid. And back goes the cow to Norrie and the fourteen children. Continued cheers. A martial judge. In court his usual mirth and ready wit never failed him, and he kept the bar and listening bystanders in constant hilarity. He made an excellent hit during the trial of Sir George Bingham for assault during the tithe agitation. The general's aide de camp, Captain Berners of the Royal Artillery, was under examination. A junior counsel asked the witness, What is the meaning of the military phrase, Ride him down? Do you think, interposed O'Connell, we are here to get an explanation of plain English from an English aide-de-camp, with his tongue in holiday dress? Then, turning to the witness, he said, You belong to the artillery, and understand horse language? Yes. Mr. Justice Moore, who tried the case here, observed, I ought to understand it, Mr. O'Connell, for I was a long while captain of cavalry. Yes, you were, my lord, replied O'Connell, and I recollect you a long time a sergeant, too. This ready sally caused a burst of laughter throughout the whole court. Retentive Memory At Darinane he was sitting one morning surrounded by country people, some asking his advice, some his assistance, others making their grievances known. Amongst the rest was a farmer rather advanced in life, a swaggering sort of fellow, 
who was desirous to carry his point by impressing the liberator with the idea of his peculiar honesty and respectability he was anxious that o'connell should decide a matter in dispute between him and a neighboring farmer who he wished to insinuate was not as good as he ought to be for my part i at least can boast that neither i nor mine were ever brought before a judge or sent to jail however it was with others stop stop my fine fellow cried the liberator let me see pausing a moment let me see it is now just twenty-five years ago last august that i myself saved you from transportation and had you discharged from the dock the man was thunderstruck he thought such a matter could not be retained in the great man's mind he shrunk away murmuring that he should get justice elsewhere and never appeared before the liberator afterwards a political hurrah at a funeral ascending the mountain road between dublin and glencullen in company with an english friend o'connell was met by a funeral the mourners soon recognized him and immediately broke into a vociferous hurrah for their political favorite much to the astonishment of the sassenach who, accustomed to the solemn and lugubrious decorum of English funerals, was not prepared for an outburst of Celtic enthusiasm upon such an occasion. A remark being made on the oddity of a political hurrah at a funeral, it was replied that the corpse would have doubtless cheered lustily too, if he could. Refusal of Office In 1838, on the morning when o'connell received from the government the offer to be appointed lord chief baron he walked over to the window saying this is very kind very kind indeed but i haven't the least notion of taking the offer ireland could not spare me now not but that if she could i don't at all deny that the office would have great attractions for me let me see now there would not be more than about eight days duty in the year i would take a country house near dublin and walk into town and during the intervals of judicial labor i'd go to darinan i should be idle in the early part of april just when the jack hares leave the most splendid trails upon the mountains in fact i should enjoy the office exceedingly upon every account if i could but accept it consistently with the interest of ireland but i cannot a mistaken frenchman when travelling in france during the time of his sojourn at st omer's o'connell encountered a very talkative frenchman who incessantly poured forth the most bitter tirades against england o'connell listened in silence and the frenchman surprised at his indifference at last exclaimed do you hear do you understand what i am saying sir yes i hear you i comprehend you perfectly yet you do not seem angry not in the least how can you so tamely bear the censures i pronounce against your country sir england is not my country censure her as much as you please you cannot offend me i am an irishman and my countrymen have as little reason to love england as yours have perhaps less 
epistolary bores. The number of letters received by O'Connell upon trivial subjects was sufficient to try his patience, as the following will show. A letter once arrived from New York, which on opening he found to contain a minute description of a Queen Anne's farthing recently found by the writer, with a modest request that Ireland's liberator might negotiate the sale of the said farthing in London, where, as many intelligent persons had assured him, he might make his fortune by it. Another modest correspondent was one Peter Waldron, also of New York, whose epistle ran thus, Sir, I have discovered an old paper by which I find that my grandfather, Peter Waldron, left Dublin around the year 1730. You will very much oblige me by instituting an immediate inquiry who the said Peter Waldron was, whether he possessed any property in Dublin or elsewhere, and to what amount, and in case that he did, you will confer a particular favour on me by taking immediate steps to recover it, and, if successful, forwarding the amount to me at New York. At another time a Protestant clergyman wrote to apprise him that he and his family were all in prayer for his conversion to the Protestant religion, and that the writer was anxious to engage in controversy with so distinguished an antagonist. The letters with which he was persecuted, soliciting patronage, were innumerable. Everybody writes to me about everything, said he, and the applicants for places, without a single exception, tell me that one word of mine will infallibly get them what they want. One word. Oh, how sick I am of that one word. Some of his rural correspondents entertained odd ideas of his attributes. He said that from one of them he got a letter commencing with awful sir. Sir R. Peel's Opinion of O'Connell Sir Robert Peel is said to have expressed his high appreciation of O'Connell's parliamentary abilities. While the reform bill was under discussion, the speeches of his friends and foes were one day canvassed at Lady Beauchamp's. On O'Connell's name being mentioned, some critic fastidiously said, Oh, a broguing Irish fellow, who would listen to him? I always walk out of the house when he opens his lips. Come, Peel, said Lord Westmoreland, let me hear your opinion. My opinion candidly is, replied Sir Robert, that if I wanted an efficient and eloquent advocate, I would readily give up all the other orators of whom we have been talking, provided I had with me this same roguing Irish fellow. At the Bishop of Waterford's table, the following anecdote was related by O'Connell. My grandmother had twenty-two children and half of them lived beyond the age of ninety. Old Mr. O'Connell of Derrynan pitched upon an oak tree to make his own coffin, and mentioned his purpose to a carpenter. In the evening the butler entered after dinner to say that the carpenter wanted to speak with him. "'For what?' asked my uncle. "'To talk about your honour's coffin,' said the carpenter, putting his head inside the door over the butler's shoulder. I wanted to get the fellow out, but my uncle said, Oh, let him in by all means. Well, friend, 
what do you want to say to me about my coffin only sir that i'll saw up the oak tree that your honour was speaking of into seven-foot plank that would be wasteful answered my uncle i never was more than six feet and an inch in my vamps the best day ever i saw but your honour will stretch after death said the carpenter not eleven inches i'm sure you blockhead but i'll stretch no doubt perhaps a couple of inches or so well make my coffin six feet six and i'll warrant that will give me room enough i remember said o'connell being counsel at a special commission in kerry against a mr s something and having occasion to press him somewhat hard in my speech he jumped up in the court and called me a purse-proud blockhead i said to him in the first place i have got no purse to be proud of and secondly if i be a blockhead it is better for you as i am counsel against you however just to save you the trouble of saying so again i'll administer a slight rebuke whereupon i whacked him soundly on the back with the president's cane next day he sent me a challenge by william ponsonby of Courtauld, but very shortly after he wrote to me to state that since he had challenged me he had discovered that my life was inserted in a very valuable lease of his under these circumstances he continued i cannot afford to shoot you unless as a precautionary measure you first insure your life for my benefit if you do then high for powder and ball i'm your man now this seems so ludicrously absurd that it is almost incredible yet it is literally true s something was a very timid man yet he fought six duels in fact he fought them all out of pure fear end of section eight recording by james carson end of irish wit and humor the author is anonymous